Well, good morning. Um, this uh, flexibility is the thing we do now, isn't it? Uh, different places, different times, contexts, and so on. It's uh, been, and, and I don't know about you, but I've been sitting here actually just loving being amongst a small group of people, distanced and all the rest, but. Uh, uh, pray God we get back together soon. But I've been going through this emotional journey. Uh, you know, Paige, wow, you, most of, many of us know that uh, whole journey and, and Paige, our prayers are for you and so on. But wow, and then through to, to Martin and Amber and all the have a go and all, just been um, up and down. So let's pray and let's uh, give ourselves now to this very special thing of reflecting on those words that we have heard from God. How about we do this together? Let me pray. Father, we do ask, please, that you might cause this time to be a great blessing. It's been such a, a rich experience up until this point. And we pray, please, that now as we dig into your word, you would, you would reach into our hearts and change us, please. Uh, give us the joy of our salvation. Help us know what it is to follow you and serve you in gladness of heart. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you two words, uh, futility and meaningful futility and meaningful they're very different words with very different meanings aren't they the, the, with massively different outcomes too futility and meaningful uh, to live a life and have it end in futility I, I don't know that there's a greater tragedy to, to live it and spend years living life running down a certain path only to realize or be forced to face that the whole thing has been futile empty would be a massive trap would be would be the end of everything um, now i use that word too to, forced to realize because futility is such a distress it's it's the end of everything to actually come to appreciate that i might have been living a futile life it's almost impossible to believe that i could have i'll search for some reason why it's the, the afghanistan thing the 20 years war we are trying to find some reason why the 20 years wasn't futile because futility is the end of everything. But to have lived a life where your life had been futile. You know, if you could see it was heading down that path, you'd change it, wouldn't you? I'd change it. To live a meaningful life, to live a life full of meaning, a life that lasts, has fruit, makes a difference, has purpose, is worthwhile. Is, I mean, it's just infinitely better. Uh, it's every person's honest hope to live the meaningful life. And I want to suggest to you this morning there's a key to that happening. There's, there's a key to ensuring that your life isn't futile but is meaningful. And it comes out in the passage we're looking at today. It's got to do with personal identity though with that whole idea completely reshaped. So, see, I, I, when I, as soon as I mentioned the idea of personal identity, being who you are, I know most of us kind of isolate you. Ah, oh, there we are again. We're going to pop culture. Well, I want to suggest that popular culture is onto something, but very distorted in the way it's understood it. So don't switch off. Uh, the key to a meaningful life is personal identity, but getting all of that right is critical for us so let's jump straight in i want you to go grab your book your bible esther uh, or listen in of course but esther chapter four i want to go straight to the point and then come back come straight to the point it comes where uh, a man called mordecai we'll hear more about this in a moment many of you have been with us in this journey you'll know but mordecai writes uh to 
uh, his adopted daughter, Esther, at verse 12, verse 13. He sends back this message to Esther, who's now queen. She's now queen of Persia, 480 BC. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. More on that in a moment. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Now there's so much here to fill in. We're going to come to that in a second. But what I want you to notice is her response to this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, if you know the story, and I'm going to show you the story in a second. This, this is the moment. This is the great moment where everything turns on this. I mean, there are many moments where the whole deliverance of this Jewish people it kind of depends upon there's very little but this is the big turn and see what's happened is this is the moment that Esther grows up there's a massive change from futility to meaningful up until this point she had lots of superficial things going for her uh, she was the woman out of every romantic comedy do you know what I mean bright fun good looking but superficial but from this point on, she turns into a woman of substance. It's quite extraordinary. And look, now what's happened? What, what is going on in all of this that's led to this, that's caused her to be different from this point? What's happened? Well, let me take you through the context. The Jews, you might remember, if you've been with us the last few weeks, have been scattered. They've been in exile. This is many centuries before Jesus. And uh, they've been taken into exile, they've been defeated, they're weak, uh, they've got no king, they've got no army, they're a very uh, despised people. Many had gone home though after this long years in exile, many had been freed to go back home to Jerusalem and many had. But many had stayed in Persia and Babylon where they'd been taken in exile and, and Esther was one of them. She was an orphaned uh, girl, an orphaned Jewish girl raised by her cousin uh, an older man called Mordecai, and uh, she'd won the heart of the king of Persia through extraordinary circumstances, which we saw last week. And she's now queen, Esther, of the Jewish race. A nobody is now queen. But then the great horror emerges. I'll call it the great horror. And it comes to us in chapter 3. So let me take you through this. We're introduced in chapter 3 to a new character, a man called Haman. See chapter 3 verse 1, after these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all the other nobles. Verse 2, all the officials bowed down to Haman, a new, we've not heard of him before, but now chapter 3 is introduced. But all the officials have to bow down to him as the king requires. The king commanded that this would be the case. Everyone bowed down to him except... Mordecai. Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Now we don't know why Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman. Um, you, you know, there's, 
people asked him why not. Verse four, you get this thing. Uh, verse day after day, they spoke to him. You know that he refused to comply, and they then told Haman uh, to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. The only hint as to why Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman is that last little phrase, he was a Jew. But we don't quite know what to make of that. It's very vague, and I dare say it's deliberately vague. And I'd suggest the reason for Mordecai refusing to bow to Haman is almost certainly not because of idolatry. You know, the Jews were very careful not to bow down or worship anyone apart from Yahweh God, their God, the true God. But there's no even evidence here that uh, bowing to Haman was anything more than saluting a commanding officer. There's no suggestion it's worshipping him anyway. I, I suspect the problem is more to do with the history between these two men. There does appear to be quite a history. Haman is introduced to us there in verse 1. Uh, and, and the big thing that we're told about him is that he's an Agagite. He's an Agagite. That's the big identity piece for Haman. And that alerts you to something, because when we're introduced to Mordecai, back in chapter 2, verse 5, we're told that he's a Jew. Now, there's bad blood between Agagite and Jew. There's been a long history of bad blood going way back in the history of Israel. Um, And it's very likely that Mordecai, the Jew, is captive to this hostility that has been an ancient one towards Agagites. But it's very likely that Haman has stirred this hostility up. It is just worth noting that chapter 2 ends with Mordecai doing a great service for the king, Uh, it being, verse 23, found to be true that Mordecai has rescued the king. It was recorded in the book of the Annals, but he was not at all rewarded for it. In chapter 3, verse 1, where you expect reward for Mordecai, you end up with honouring of Haman. And so it does suggest there's this bad blood between these two men. There's a tension that's going on. But here it is, this personal squabble, possible pettiness on Mordecai's part, and certainly the fragility of Haman's pride, turns nuclear. Haman's wounded pride, his anger at someone for not treating him as he thought he deserved to be treated, you know that feeling. Well, Haman's anger at that leads him to push for total ethnic cleansing. He's angry at Mordecai, the Jew, and determines to get rid of every Jew in the world. This is power gone wrong. So verse 5 and 6, you see... Haman wouldn't bow, Uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom. And he brings it before the king, verse 8, and he creates a spin narrative, you know what this is. He um, he, um, says some truths, finds some things that are true about the Jews, spins it all together into a story, into a narrative, and puts it before the king and the king without fact checking signs a death warrant for the whole of the jewish people verse 11. now i don't want to slow things down too much but humans have never changed two and a half thousand years we are still doing the same thing Uh, it's astonishing was it this last week 
that a, a young teenager died of a heart attack suddenly, surprisingly, died of a heart attack while swimming. A very fit young man, apparently. And um, a, a, a woman posted online after speaking to two people who swore on their lives that he'd been vaccinated and this vaccine had caused him to have this heart attack. She posted online the horror of vaccines and how they'd led to this young man's death. The problem was it wasn't true. But before fact-checking came in, social media pounced and harangued the school for daring to vaccinate, vaccinate the young children with such, and ha harangued the family and the friends. And, and this tragedy became multiplied. The truth was he hadn't been vaccinated at all. But no one had actually checked. You, you see, it's possible to, we spin narratives all the time. Can I just say, don't be like the king who hears a story online and piles on without actually pausing to reflect whether it's actually put together. Yes, there's some facts that are true, but it's been put. Take great care, especially in our context and day, right at the moment. But go back into their world. You know, our context can be dreadful with the consequences of us not. But back then, a whole racial group was about to be slaughtered. Verse 13 of chapter 3, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews. Just in case you were unclear about what the intention was, three words are repeated, young and old, women and children, on a single day. And a copy of the text was posted everywhere. This is clear and emphatic. And I mentioned last week that uh, you think this couldn't possibly be true except we've had the Second World War to see this very experience played out. Verse 15, the two who cause this sit and drink and relax. And the whole city of Susa, the capital where it all happened, were bewildered. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all this, he tore his clothes. He was gripped with grief. Every city, the Jews went into great mourning, of course, and fasting and weeping and wailing. Um, but Mordecai couldn't do much more than this to bring his concern to the king because he's not part of that royal court. You can't just waltz in and so on. Except that verse 4, it just so happened that the queen is Mordecai's adopted daughter put in place many years before by God's hidden sovereign hand. And in her bubble, it seems like she's heard nothing. She's not heard any of this kind of thing. She's protected from it. Except that she just so happens to have Mordecai as her adopted father. And she was able to communicate with him through a slave. And the news was therefore brought to Esther about what's happening in her response. This is important. Verse 11, see it. Her response is, all the king's officials and the peoples of the royal provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, they'll be put to death. And so she's effectively saying, um, if, if I try and do something, like I know, you know, like it's going to kill me. So really, I, I, I've got nothing. I can't do anything. I'm sorry, my hands are tied. And so... We come to the passage we started with. Verse 12, Mordecai 
writes back to his daughter. Do not think, and we're going to slow down and look at this. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. I'm going to suggest what Mordecai says you can fit it into three headings. He, he, he speaks to her of reality, a choice, and inspiration. He gives her reality, a choice, and inspiration. You look at it with me. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. This will capture you as well. Don't think that just because you're in the palace, in the harem, removed in the bubble of pleasure, you'll escape. You're a Jew. You'll go down with all the Jews. There's reality. And the reality is, uh, if you're silent, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, from the hidden sovereign God. Reality is that there's a power above all powers, a God who will deliver his people. He has promised, Genesis chapter 12, he will vindicate his name, he'll deliver his people, and he'll vindicate his name in the deliverance of his people. The, Mordecai brings a series of realities, truths to his daughter, to Esther, hiding from what's happening, Esther, pretending that others are just the ones captured up by this Esther, won't stop it happening. And won't stop it happening to you. You've now got a choice whether to be part of that deliverance or not. You see, the reality is it will come, but you need to choose whether you'll be in it or left out. Now, it's brutal. Mordecai <laughs> brings a dose of the doctor's reality. You keep living that life, you'll die. There's no sugarcoating. Reality often is brutal. And Mordecai delivers it. But he finishes with this powerful piece of inspiration. Look at the last sentence. Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Who knows but that maybe your life has this great purpose that God intends for it? Esther. You see, the choice is to continue thinking she's living on the sidelines of this conflict, continuing to think that she can sit it out, and this conflict between Haman and the Persian Empire and the Jews will play out while she watches it untouched by it. And the choice is that, that she needs to decide whether really that's reality, can I sit on the sideline and be untouched or face the truth actually that I'm on the playing field, whether I like it or not? And my choice is to be a passive piece on that playing field or active. I think that's what Mordecai is saying. You know, you, you can think to yourself, Esther, that you live in your bubble and you can play golf every day and you make the house more beautiful and it'll all just happen out there, but that's not true. Your choice is not whether you're out of it or in it, but whether you're an active participant or a passive one in it. And she can therefore choose to be, here it is, who she is. 
embrace who she is, that she is one of God's people and that God may well have put her there for that very purpose. Now Esther's response, Esther's response is a changed woman. Verse 16, go and gather all the Jews together fast. She now commands Mordecai. She is no longer the passive, superficial woman of chapters 1 and 2. She's no longer the woman of the beginning of chapter 4, where she said, look, you know, it's dangerous. If I try and do something, I could die and, you know, I can't. She's no longer that woman either. She finishes her statement. If I perish, I perish. Even though it's against the law, I will go to the king. This is now a woman who has stepped up and become a person of courage and depth and substance. This is how women ought to be. Now what's happened? She's faced reality and faced who she truly is. She has embraced the identity that matters most. And that identity is that she is a member of God's people, the God of the universe. You see, up to this point, if you've been following along, she's hidden that identity. Uh, Mordecai actually encouraged it and she passively went along with it. He, she, he encouraged her that, to go into the, the bachelor house, do you remember? Um, not saying anything about her identity as a Jew, to keep that quiet. And when she went into that house, she didn't tell anyone uh, and she went along with everything. And as someone who was hiding who she truly was, she compromised her faith again and again and again. She just drifted along with the tide. She was not like Daniel, the lion's den Daniel, who wouldn't eat the food that was not... He, he, he stood and stood. Esther just drifted. But then the reality check came. Persecution came. And she was forced by her father to face the question of who she was truly. What was her life about? And she stepped up. She owned who she was. She chose no longer to be passive, thinking she could just sit it out on the sidelines. There was no sideline. There was no fence. And she grows. She no longer waits on Mordecai, she takes charge, she commands, she initiates and she takes risks. She's a woman of courage. Why? Because she owns who she truly is. And this is where this insight is like and not like popular culture. Let me think with you about popular culture for a moment. In our day and age, there's lots of talk about being who you are. Every Disney movie is about being who you are. Everyone is on to this idea. Um, and I want to say, yes, it does matter that you be who you are. There's something true there. But it's a half-truth, which means it's half-wrong. You see, what matters in being who you are is that you work out what about who you are matters the most. That's the critical piece. You see, lots of things make up who a person is. You think of Esther. Esther's a woman. Esther's a queen. Uh, Esther's a beautiful person. E Esther's a person of luxury. There's lots of things that make up. Esther has a history as an adopted 
daughter of, as an orphan. She's, all of these things make up who she is. But here it is. In the face of the coming judgment, none of that mattered. In the light of life and death, what really mattered about who she was was crystal clear. And what really mattered about who she was was that she was God's covenant person. And being her person, she realised, was everything. It was more important than life and death. You see, be who we are, the cry of the day. There's a truth, but it's a half-truth. And the half-truth, the lie piece, is letting Hollywood tell you about who you are. I'm just astonished that we keep listening to Hollywood celebrities and their wisdom on these things. You see, when Hollywood celebrities talk about the importance of being who you are, they, effectively they're saying to us, um, do you know, the, are, are, you, are, you, are you black? Well, that's who you are. That, that's be, be the colour of your skin. Uh, do, do you have a sexual orientation that's different to others? Well, that's who you are. Be who you are, they say. Uh, this is all tragically wrong. Yes, these things are part of our story. For, for, for all of us, we have different things that make up who we are, uh, um, who we are attracted to, um, my family background, my, my, my sex, my, my gender. These things are all part of who I am, my, the colour of my skin. Yeah, these things are part of all I am. I'm a mother, I'm a builder, I'm a, I'm a, I surf, I, I, I'm a uni student. All of these things make up our identity. But none of them are big enough to make the central defining feature of who I am. And a life lived with any of these as the central defining feature of your life will lead you to futility you will end up having lived a life in futility if you make your identity that I serve or that I play golf or that I'm a mother or a father or a same-sex. If you make these things your identity, you will drive your life to futility. It matters to get this right, to have any hope of a truly meaningful life. You see, think with me, what is it that matters about who you are? What is the truly big thing about who you are? Let me give you a series. The truly big thing about who we are is that we're creatures made in the image of God, made for eternity by that God. Creatures made in the image of God, unique of all creatures, made for eternity and made for relationship with that God. That is the big thing about who we are. And add to that this, we are either in relationship with that God through the merits of Jesus by his death on the cross and resurrection, we're either in relationship with that God or are out of relationship with that God. That's the truly big thing about who we are. All the rest is add-on. Now, why do I say, how can I say that's the big thing? Because of this. There's a day coming when we all will stand before this God, when everything will be stripped bare. All the things we've lived for will be gone. 
and there'll be one thing left. Me standing before the holy, righteous God of the universe. A day when he vindicates his holy name. And on that day, the only thing that matters, the only thing that will matters, is whether you know him, whether you're in relationship with him, whether you've been forgiven by him because of the merits of Christ or not. That's the only thing that matters. It won't matter that you're a queen. It won't matter that you're rich or poor. It won't matter that you're black or white or grey or green. It won't matter the colour of your skin. It, it won't matter your sexual identity. These things won't matter anymore. Everything will be laid bare. And what matters is, are you a follower of Jesus? Are you covered by the grace of Jesus? Are you forgiven in Jesus? Are you in relationship with this God or not? And see, so here is the application of this series of events for us. You see, the story so far has been big. I mean, it's about a series of events that actually happened 480 BC. Um, it was about God delivering this people who were under dire threat. But why did, he, why did that matter? That this people might be saved? Because it's from this people that a saviour comes, the Lord Jesus. And, and the story is about delivering this people that a saviour might come from them, showing the hidden hand of God, the sovereign hand of God, who works all things, who positioned that young woman to be in that place for just that thing, to save this people, to bring that saviour. But that saviour's now come. And he has redefined what it is to be a person in relationship with God. It's no longer about Jewishness. It's no longer about your ethnicity. God has made salvation for all nations through the Saviour who came from that Jewish people. So that any who bow the knee to Jesus from whatever nation, from whatever colour, <laughs> will be saved. Now at one level the story's finished. It served its purpose and it's a great testimony to the God who will keep his word, who keeps his word, who will vindicate his name. But at another level, it's a picture of a larger reckoning. This new people of God, like the old in the Old Testament, this new people of God, Christians, followers of Christ, are for the most part despised and rejected in our world. If you put up your hand as a Christian these days, it's very tough. And the New Testament tells us that God will deliver his people in a final great deliverance, of which this was just a picture. He will deliver his people finally into eternity, where all things will be set right, where judgment will be, will be done, where justice will be seen to be done, true justice. And those in Jesus will be saved and those outside of Jesus will be lost. Do you see, therefore, how this speaks to us? To the world. It speaks a word of reality. There's no fence. There is a day of God's vindication coming and you can't sit on the fence. You can't sit on the sidelines and imagine it's just a squabble between those religious people and others. You can't sit on the There's no sideline. This, this final day is coming for all of us. Every human will be captured up into this. Do you know, 
The inspiration here, though, is this. If you're tuning into this stream, if you're connecting with these things, who knows? But that you might have come to this very point of listening to these things for such a time as being captured up to this God truly, finally, wonderfully. Who knows, but that the circumstances of your life have brought you right to this point that you might face these realities and the great gift that God has for you, that your life may long, no longer end in futility but find meaning and purpose in the one you were made for. So this speaks to all, of, all the world, but it speaks to us as Christians. Friends, this is a reality check as well. You can't just sit this out like Esther tried. You can't live your life hiding who you are as someone in relationship with Jesus. There's a danger there that it might be that your shame at talking about who you are, stepping up and being who you are, it might be your shame in that is such that you actually aren't really in relationship with this person, Jesus, at all. He says to us a great warning. He says, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this present generation, then I'll be ashamed of you when you stand before me. You can't sit this out. Esther thought she could, but Mordecai brought her a reality that you're in this, whether you like it or not. Brothers and sisters, we're in this. You can't sit it out. But you know, this doesn't just come with a warning, but with a powerful inspiration for the meaning and significance of the part that we play in God's purposes. It's beautiful. You see, who knows but that God puts you in the very place you're in for such a time as this. There's a reality, you can't sit this out, you need to step in, you need to be active. But who knows but that God has put you in the place you're in for this very, night, very time. And I want to suggest to you we can know. The New Testament makes it very clear that each of us has been put in the exact place we're in for such a time as this. God is the God who works out all things together for good. God is the God who works out all things according to the purpose of his will. God knows the times and days. He knows every, he's put you where you are for a purpose. Now, perhaps not to save the world like Esther did, but it will be to make a difference wonderfully for God and his purposes. God intends something profound for your life, that you be salt and light, that you don't hide your light under a bushel, but you, you let people know, the world know that you love this Jesus, you're for this Jesus. And there is something profound he intends for your life, that you use whatever circumstances you're in to step up. You know, my wonderful wife has been using this little phrase around the place, um, the language of step up. She talks about step up moments, actually, and she says there's moments in life where you have the choice to step up or fall down, drift back. It's good language. And you know what? To live a meaningful life, a life that makes a difference because God intends, is to embrace who you are. Get off the sidelines, realise you're in it and you can either be active or passive in it and step up. Embrace who you truly are. What matters most about me and you 
is our relationship with God through Jesus. That we are in Jesus. That he is our Lord and our Saviour. That is the thing that matters most about who we are. Don't let Hollywood tell you about who to be. What matters most is whether you're in Christ or not. Everything else is secondary to that. And a long distance second to it. Yeah, they're all part of who you are. Now this of course means nothing though. Unless you activate it. Unless you do step into it. And if you step into who you truly are, the most important thing about who you are, two things will happen. You'll make a difference and you'll grow. You'll make a difference to the people around you, to your family, to, 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 your, to your kids, if you're parents, to your parents, if you're kids. You'll make a difference to, to workmates, friends, and you'll grow. You'll enter into who you are more. Who you truly are will become a bigger feature of you, your life, which will make you bigger still. Let me give you some pictures of this stepping up. The stream. You know, um, if you're a parent with young kids, a step-up moment for you is just getting life organised so that you can sit in front of the TV and watch the stream. That is your walk three hours to church experience. You know in China they walk three or four hours to get to church, it's so precious. Your moment of actually valuing God's people and connecting as best you can in God's people, this is your moment to, to spend the hours you need to to get your family sorted, that you can step up and be who you are, that this is what matters most. That's a great step up moment for you and your family. Prayer. You know, that you actually intentionally enter into prayerfulness for others and not just your own circumstances. Prayerfulness about the, the, the health of God's people in this place, the cause of the gospel in the Central Coast and beyond, that you start praying the Lord's Prayer. That's a step-up moment where you actually start recognising who I am and what matters most about me is that I'm in Christ, His purposes. That's the key thing. Make that shape your prayers. You'll deepen in who you are. Talking with other Christian friends and family, that you actually raise the things of Christ. You intentionally go for a walk with someone to actually support them in their faith. That's a step-up moment. That's a moment to enter into who you are. And who knows? But that God has put you in the life of that place, those friends, those family, to be a difference in their life, I know. That is God's exact intention for you. Step up. You know, a step-up moment is to have a go. Go onto the website and pick up the have a go stuff. A step-up moment is to talk to your people, who, friends and family who don't know the Lord Jesus. Invite them to life. Take a risk relationally and step up. What matters most about who we are is that we're followers of Christ. That is the big thing. Everything else will disappear. Whether you live or die, embrace your identity in Christ. Have a go. And you will find you will have lived a meaningful life. A life being who you really are as you activate it and step into it more and more and see the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me pray for us.
Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful, wonderful story of your deliverance of this people all those centuries ago through the, the, the moments where these individuals stepped up embracing who they truly were. We thank you that through that deliverance you brought a saviour who makes it possible for us to be forgiven and all nations now be part of your people. We thank you for these great gifts through that ancient experience. But we thank you too that it portrays for us the reality that we can't sit on the sidelines. That there is a greater deliverance coming of which we'll all be swept up into. We thank you that it helps us think about our personal identity. And I would pray for all of us that you might help us step into that. That you would help us see what matters most about who we are. That we are in Christ. And that you might cause us therefore to live and activate that identity. To your glory and our good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to...